Welcome to Banter Radio. I'm Will Sherwin. On this episode, you'll hear a discussion I had with Nancy McDonald and Art Fisher. Nancy McDonald is the Director of Family Service of Eastern Nova Scotia, and Art Fisher is the Director of Family Service of Western Nova Scotia. Together, they are the co-founders of the Nova Scotia Trauma-Informed Network. We're also joined by Scott Ralston, LCSW from Oakland, California, who's a big fan of Art and Nancy's work. Together, we take a critical look at the ways trauma is being talked about in the trauma-informed movement. We talk about radical systems change, social determinants of health, uh, response-based conversations on trauma, and a lot more. You can go to sfbantr.org for the show notes and contact information for Art and Nancy. Enjoy the show. Well, Nancy McDonald and Art Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your organizations that you're involved with and what they do. If you could introduce our listeners uh, who may not know anything about you, um, about the roles of your different organizations. We both work for family service agencies. So um, I work for Family Service of Eastern Nova Scotia. And my role with that organization is as an executive director and also as a frontline worker. I received permission when I took over as executive director to maintain an active caseload. And I feel very strongly that that helps um, inform far better decision making at the executive director level if I can remain linked to the purpose of our work. And we deliver service across all of eastern Nova Scotia and our services that we deliver are programming, community-based programming and therapy services to families. Hmm. And so, uh, yes, I'm executive director of Family Service of Western Nova Scotia. We provide services over, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different sites, I think, in the western part of the province. All those services are free supports for underserved people. Again, like Nancy, I'm a, I'm a practitioner, so I'm an ED, but I still do all kinds of practice and supervision work together with people. That's critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't. I think one of the dangers is when I've seen like what happens in community-based organizations when the ED is a manager with no understanding yeah. or experience of the work, and uh, it's an incredibly important role to play. We have to be. We have to be, and that's why that's why we're both so practice-focused. The Trauma-Informed Network has been a wonderful way to to uh, share that Absolutely. and support that focus. Right. We have different different things we do in the Western region. We provide men's intervention and support across that region. Um, we've taken on new partnerships over the last years specific to certain areas. So we have a partnership with government on the south shore of Nova Scotia based at a site called Freeman House. And Freeman House is a prototype for service delivery transformation. Um, it's a prototype for uh, delivering services the way we've been talking about uh, that are coordinated, that focus on providing services across the social determinants of health that are case managed when people don't have case management anywhere else. We also have at that site a federal housing support program uh, funded by the federal government of Canada. Those uh, programs uh, together can start to actually then provide a site where people can link uh, with the services they need across the social determinants of health. And then together we created the Trauma-Informed Network. We created the Trauma-Informed Network together with lots of optimism at the beginning, and then we got scared. We did get scared. Right, by, tra- by trauma-informed discourses. <laughs> and, um, and also I think a huge part of this that needs to be said as well is that 
we have a very good moment um, uh, uh, now in Nova Scotia. We have a very good moment because we're working together with people in government departments that are committed to the service transformation too. Yes. And so community, the, uh, us in the community-based sector, we're not alone. No. Uh, we're working together with not only provincial government, we also have a federal government that's committed to issues like safe and secure housing for all the population of Canada. And we have a federal government that's committed to feminism. So what we're experiencing is a moment that sometimes I tear up because I think it's a moment that's all too rare in the world right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a moment when all levels of government and community can be focused together on service transformation and social change. Mm -hmm. That's a good quote. Yeah, I guess that one's <laughs> a keeper. A good one. <laughs> Sounds nice. Uh, I, I thought I would start by kind of saying how um, we first heard about you, Art Fisher, Nancy McDonald, which is when I was searching online and I came across the CH Network's audio recording put up by the Public Health Agency of Canada and heard the ways you're talking about trauma and trauma-informed work. And where we are in the Bay Area, you know, in community mental health, I've been exposed to lots of trainings about trauma. Some of them didn't feel like they were so helpful in, in working with people in the community. I had questions and concerns and doubts about the ways we were talking about trauma that I didn't feel like other people were talking about so much. And when I heard you, Nancy, and Art talking in this CH Network's audio, I was like, finally, they're talking about the questions that I have. <laughs> and, and I was really interested in the ways you were talking about it. So it stood out to me, put a short excerpt in an earlier podcast, and Scott heard it. Scott Ralston here heard it. And he, he sent me this uh, appreciative email about it, and he was excited about it, too. I, I don't know, maybe if you could say something, Scott, about what kind of stood out to you about that recording. It's a lot like you described. While working in circumstances of trauma-informed care and wondering what that meant and feeling uneasy, like there was something missing from, from it that was not really humanizing people, that was that was shrinking people rather than really healing them. And so here, hearing you speak about it on, on the podcast really struck a nerve for me and got me so excited just to feel like this was the beginning of something I really wanted to follow and that I was really interested in and intrigued about and, and I wanted to try to build on. In, in my work right now, there's a lot of... Well, this idea that there's a certain like prescribed therapy for trauma is really strong. And so as me as a person who's in, interested in narrative therapy or postmodern or post-structural approaches, it's, it, it's difficult footing to be on and to justify preferred way of, of my, how I intend to be with people when there's a lot of pressure for me to, for example, become certified in EMDR or something like that. So in hearing you speak about it, it really resonated with what I value about trying to do this work. And I, I feel so excited to, um, to be here, just to be informed of the rest of your thinking, to see, hear about what comes next and about how one would follow this thread. Wonderful. Um, no, it's really been wonderful to hear what you're both saying. Just for me, there was this increasing realization and it was, um, I think just being impacted by so many conversations with so many people I was working together with and in a context where I just think like so many people that we connect with would classify in our culture as underserved, yes. uh, would classify in our culture as marginalized. 
and um, we provide uh, free free uh, supports and services. And so in that context, there's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of ways in which people's identities have been decided and reconstructed by everybody else uh, and by a large helping system. And so I kept having a lot of men coming to me with the problems already predefined by everybody else. One example was um, a man might come to me and say, well, everybody says I've got to stop the drinking and stop the lying. So I just started asking people uh, questions that in lots of ways were designed to subvert the status quo. Uh, so I just, you know, ask, has lying ever helped you? And so what people then started to tell me was often about the way in which the currently viewed quote-unquote problem, actually at some point that action or that practice was significant in saving their lives, was significant in making things safer. One man said to me, he said, everybody wants me to stop the lying, but when he was like, I think, seven years old, lying helped him get away from mom and dad's because it wasn't safe to grow up there. And lying helped him get to his grandmother's where it was safe to grow up. And um, so I just became interested in how, you know, I can be trained as a worker to spend so much time transporting people away from what I think is the problem and what we collectively think is the problem. And am I transporting them away from their very survival skills? And why do we think trauma is deficit? Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly culturally violence is deficit. Violence isn't helpful. Why do we think trauma is automatically deficit? Maybe trauma is a, a helpful response to um, surviving violence. You know, what's the problem? Why do we think trauma is the problem? I, but that's, you know, what, what would you, Nancy? That's, I can keep going on and on. Well, so many things that have been talked about. Um, you, you talked before about struggling in your work around when you're using the word, using the language of trauma around keeping the, keeping the work humanized. And I think something that Art and I have shared within this province, despite the fact that we are at two opposite ends of our province, is um, a very long history of working with men and feeling during our time, struggling with trying to hold on to that humanizing piece of our work when so many times that the not only was the man's story already told, but also the prescribed method of what we were supposed to be doing with these men was also being prescribed to us. And we struggled uh, uh, silently without mm. until we got together. We didn't know that we each other existed. We knew each other existed, but we didn't realize that we were struggling with the same issues um, till finally we found that if we if we looked at trauma-informed practice on a structural level and really paid attention to, to these people's individuals' responses, then we could also bring back that humanizing piece of work and we could actually care and support all at the same time as also working with and challenging and doing all those other things. So it, it has been instrumental for our two shops and as Art and I as frontline workers, I think in carrying on our work with men and boys in a much more respectful and it feels for me um, ethical way for sure. I, I, it, it fits better with who I am as a person to be able to care for somebody at the same time as instead of already having a guy come in and he's referred from the courts for anger management and being prescribed that he has to do, has to participate in a 20-hour anger management group and have feeling like I had no other 
avenues within my disposal to to actually seek any of his any of his story or any of his responses. So now with this trauma inform with uh, with this version, it feels like we can figure out how he's how he's been responding throughout his life, and that feels like he now has a place to stand. As much as there might be new things that come in that he's interested in, at least we're acknowledging where what he already knows about that situation feels so much better than automatically assuming that the per that that man in particular in front of us already has to be moved to somewhere else without that totally makes sense to me and also the piece about that i'm thinking of is that is that in the past would it be accurate to say that uh we've been part of a system that completely in some ways therapizes that man completely and so completely. whether it's an anger management completely. discourse or a gender-based discourse in terms of what he needs to go through completely. we've therapized yes. him i mean in this context of violence work one of the ironies and i think one of the things that i was very private about uh, when i was alone before we connected was that um does it so does it felt like that we've been consulting the very people that we're not supposed to at all trust uh, completely right because completely. because the whole discourse on violence says that man's trying to pull the wool over our, our eyes uh, yes. Right, the whole discourse says he's untrustable. Yes. And so it's been a process of learning how to genuinely consult with people who are expected to tell you lies. A huge piece of this for me has been, I think, in some ways facing too that, I mean, I, I've had a historically, you know, fairly long love-hate relationship with narrative practice. <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. And, uh, and, and you know, part, part of, part of, the, part of the, the hate component has to do with the word therapy. Yeah. Because... If we think of some of those men as, for yes. example, then us learning about their survival skills, their resilience, their looking at trauma as their responses. What's really significant is that they've often been impacted in huge ways that have not much to do with therapy. There's often been huge impacts in terms of their linkage with um, education, with employment, with housing. Like, like in Canada, we have, we've developed what's called the Social Determinants of Health Lens, and it's an incredibly helpful lens, I think, to apply in this work. And, and so, so it just begins to, you know, I, I, for the first time, I was consulting men about, you know, do you eat breakfast? Not that you have to, but like, you know, what's sleep like for you? You know, uh, what's housing like for you? Uh, what's employment like for you? So I think, you know, in many ways, I worry that if we look back at, at the way in which those programs that we have been expected to take these men through, I think in many ways those programs are upper middle class inventions yes. that we've applied or laid over people's lives and the people we're working with are, don't have the advantages of an upper middle class existence. Does that make... Yeah. You brought up a new word that I haven't heard before, it's just therapized. I've heard of pathologized and psychologized. We're talking about therapized. And does that mean someone who's required to do so much therapy that it crowds out other possibilities of helping? How do you think that word? I would say all of the above. I, I think part of what has happened within our province and our helping landscape is um, therapy becomes what everyone is expected to do. That the, the solution to all things. And I think what Art and I are, are trying to explore with how we are broadening the, the whole idea of trauma-informed care is really paying attention to, it's, it's not to say that therapy isn't at times necessary, but it is to say that it, in many, many people's lives, that if you actually 
listen to what that person is saying and what they're needing at that moment. It has a lot more to do with the other social determinants of health and a whole lot less to do with therapy. And um, unfortunately, our helping system right now, and probably it has been a lot in the history, is all about therapy all about therapy. Our wait lists are so long for therapy that people can't even hope to get in. And and I, Art and I keep thinking that there is a time and place for therapy. We both run therapy-based agencies, but there is also a huge, huge gap increasing around housing and food and um, shelter and all kinds of those social determinants of health. And it's not so much that these people might need therapy, they might actually need food. And, and shelter. And it's curious as to who gets to decide, yeah. right? Who gets to decide what that when when yeah. and when and how that need might be applied. Yeah. And and therapization for me as well is about individualization. So it's about yes. it's about rendering the social and the structural invisible, right? It's about it's about thinking that everybody coming into our office is an individual person that simply needs something altered inside and then they need to be moved along. You know, like at one point, I remember uh, reading an article about narrative practice that somebody wrote in Australia, and I've, it wasn't somebody who was connected with narrative practice, but but the person was just amazed with, you know, how many transport metaphors we have within narrative. You know, we're always trying to move people somewhere, like it's a big, it's a big, you know, a moving and storage company. And, um, and, and so, you know, I really started to question, like, why, so why are we so intent on individualistically moving people to some preferred space that I think tends to be mostly preferred by us. And I used to traditionally think that, you know, when people were like, quote unquote, resistant to that movement, uh, of course, we could easily blame uh, things like dominant masculinity and say, well, he's, you know, he's just mesmerized by dominant masculinity instead of slowing down and thinking, well, you know, maybe this person's resisting my attempt to move them because there's something about their responses to life that I don't yet understand. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so, and that's where the trauma-informed piece right. is, right? You know, right. If, if lying has saved someone's life, then they're probably not going to let go of it anytime soon. If drinking has saved somebody's life, they're probably not going to let go of it anytime soon. And where individuals go with that, with those conversations, when you actually have conversations around their response skills and when they're honored as response skills and being very knowledgeable about uh, survival or response skills, whatever language you want to use, what ends up happening is they end up deciding when those are useful still in their current state and when they're not so useful. And then that opens up, that, that platforms or scaffolds them to an ability to then decide what they might need to, to be looking at, in, at their, in their current life rather than us prescribing without understanding what their response skills are and how they're meaningful to them because our common way that we work completely makes that invisible. We, Completely, and doesn't it deny the lying they might have to yes. do yes. to get to through us yes. to get through a structure yes. like a system? Yes. So it's I think therapizing people as well is is in many ways isn't it? It's like denying that they have to navigate the system. Yeah. And there's there's going to be a lot of complexity in responding to that. The other thing that we talked about earlier was the idea of um, trauma specific therapy, and Art and I have we've talked a lot about this and the whole idea of 
it scares us and it makes us worried that the whole language around trauma one is void of the language of violence because you can't you sh we shouldn't really be talking about trauma we should be talking about violence but and the whole idea that that it could, it's going to become and it is become another layer of pathology that we apply to people and that makes it a very unhelpful place to be whereas if we framed it and looked at the actual structural and the inter and the interpersonal levels of trauma that can occur that mo a lot of what we work in now and where our focus and passion is is actually at the system level the the structural harm and the structural violence that people actually are engaged in in our helping systems and it becomes so much less about the individual work that that person has to do and so much more about the actual work that the workers have to do in terms of their relationships with each other in terms of their relationships with their agencies their places that they work the relationships that those work sites have with their policies so much more of our focus has become of that and so much less about the need for the individual people that we're actually seeing in front of us as needing to move or to be different in some way. Well, I think it's so, a huge passionate issue we Absolutely. share right now is around structural systems transformation. Absolutely. And that to us is trauma-informed practice. That is trauma-informed practice. So I got a ton of questions, but I also you know I asked the last question to see if you wanted to ask a question, Scott. Well, I want to know about structural system transformation and what's happening and sort of to hear more detail about how that's unfolding. Oh, yeah. And when we talk about the hub in my area, well, part of what we've been involved in for the past few years is looking at how we can bring ourselves together as workers across sectors. So that would include across nonprofits and across government departments to coordinate services and supports better. Um, there are some very humane reasons why we want to do that. One humane reason is, is that currently people are often forced to go from door to door and tell their story over and over again because we work in isolation traditionally, right? So we were trying to subvert the silos in which we work. Also, uh, one of the influences here in Canada has been some of the work done in the context of early childhood development around what's called transdisciplinary practice. And transdisciplinary practice invites us to work together as a team. Also, what that practice invites us to do is to look at which workers have the strongest relationships with the individual or the family involved. That doesn't mean that worker is a better worker. It just means we all connect with certain people in, in the world and we don't connect as much with others. And, and so what it also allows us to do then is build on that relationship that exists and look at how we can coordinate services and supports from a people-centered perspective rather than from an institutionally driven perspective. This changes things on multiple levels. Like one of the things that changes is how people can engage with systems. So instead of, again, going from door to door telling your story over and over again, you can get linked with an organized response that helps coordinate services together. Like a huge thing that I see here at home is that people often get referred from site to site for a specific um, like therapeutic program, but nobody is actually taking any responsible for the quote-unquote case management. So, like, so nobody is actually being a coordinator that helps mm. consult with that person, right? And, and links them with what they say they need. People just often keep getting shuffled from site to site. And so this, so this involves coordinated case management. Like at, in our area, we have workers get together every week 
and this involves uh, working together on existing cases, bringing new cases to the group. And so we, we, we've structured a process on three different levels to help coordinate services. One level is the management level within our systems. The other level is at the worker level with ongoing weekly meetings to help coordinate supports. And the third level is at the level of case conferencing together with youth and uh, children, uh, youth, adult, adults, and families. And so, um, so that it's a very collaborative structure. Uh, one of the things that we're significantly seeing now with that collaborative structure is that one case brought forward and then actually studied together collaboratively, we can support the identification of structural violence. I found when I work alone, it's pretty hard to see systems issues or feel you have any capacity to deal with them. Yeah. They just feel like way bigger than me. But when we work collectively in the community across departments, we can identify structural issues together and, and then look at how we can change those issues. Uh, here, I'll, do you want to? Well, I was just going to add, the, because of these original um, collaborations with Art and I, we have been invited to talk at a lot of different places. So a lot of the, what's been happening in the province is there's a bit of a momentum around an enhanced form of collaboration like what Art is talking about. And what has grown out of there is invitations for our shops with government. We, we both work for not-for-profits and um, in the past in our province, I'm not sure in the Bay Area or not, what, what the landscape of not-for-profits relationship with government has been. But in, re in recent years, um, up until recently, there, there was quite a disconnect between government and not-for-profits. So the not-for-profits did all this wonderful work and the government did all this wonderful work, but they weren't overly connected. And partly, partly from this language um, of enhanced collaboration that's coming out of the, this version of trauma-informed care has been invitations for Arts and Minds Shop to house projects that are direct linkages between not-for-profits and governments. So there has been invitations for our shops to house new projects that actually um, bring government workers and our workers more closely aligned than they've ever been before, which you can only imagine would highlight the system's trauma and violence within those systems. But what's cool is because it's highlighted um, the significant issues, it also allows us to continue to work on them and make them visible, which is great for our work because it makes it makes this work um, very organic and very real on a day-to-day -day basis because we're seeing it all the time at that systems level from us trying to implement the projects. So what we've been invited to engage in collaboratively is uh, is systems transformation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I have to say it's the most exciting, invigorating time in my work life. Yeah. Um, because it means that we can traverse that territory from sitting with somebody who's telling us about um, what they're experiencing, which, which then can be just kind of unexplainable ways in which structures replicate violence. You know, maybe by denying somebody like, denying somebody income assistance. And so that person instead ends up uh, homeless and becomes a runaway. So we have systems, for example, that are intended to make children, youth, and families safer, but the very structures of those traditional systems put barriers in place that lead people to be at much more at risk. Right? So together, what this means is that we're identifying those barriers within the system and then looking at how we change those together. Yep. Right? Whereas historically, we were all focused on the barriers within the individual. Completely. 
Well, it sounds it sounds to me like what trauma informed means to you and how it's practiced in Nova Scotia is maybe different than a lot of the trauma informed trainings that we've gone gone to, where mostly trauma informed means we're told how essential it is to understand trauma, and we're told about the deficits a person has and the harm that trauma causes to their brains and their lives, and how we should all learn about it more. And we have these trainings repeated a lot. It's even hard to get grant money unless you talk about trauma and you're able to talk about this trauma-informed language. It sounds like you're doing something different. Go, go ahead. Oh, that is happening here too. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so just that, wanted to I think, say, yeah, just that must to be, let you know, you're not, you're not unique. <laughs> That's <laughs> happening that, everywhere. Case, yeah. But, but, well, just one thing really quickly, like why... Why are we so focused on, on studying the harm of trauma yeah. instead of studying the harm of violence? I don't get it. Like, at, and yeah. I think we need to face violence not only at personal and interpersonal levels, but at structural levels in societies. To me, the more we pay attention to studying trauma, the more we normalize violence. Because it takes energy away from talking about violence? The more, the more. Yeah. 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 Well, well, I think the more we normalize not talking about violence, mm -hmm. it amazes me that when, when I've gone to trauma-informed trainings too, my body starts to respond. And I've often had this experience of being in a, like a, a, just a, a lot of physical pain, not to mention a lot of like psychic annoyance. And, I, and, I, and, and you know, it's, it's just really, it's this excruciating experience. We bond over the pain. Yeah, oh, we we, and we bonded at the back of, the back of, of conference rooms. We do. And, um, but, but I think part of that is because, like, I always try to, like, think, well, what is it about my own life that makes me respond that way? And I think part of my survival skill in life was around questioning everything. You know, that, that's, that's part of, I think, just how I learned to try to make things safer. And I think one of the things I react to in, in whatever we want to call the mainstream trauma-informed trainings is that they're very much top-down kind of information dump sessions. And when, everybody, when anybody dumps information on me, uh, then all my suspicious skills go into high alert. And I'm just thinking, like, wh why are you saying that? Why do you believe that? What are the precepts? What are the presuppositions underneath what you're saying? And we, we talked a lot about, or we've been exploring the whole idea of what if we what <clears> if we <throat> switched um, trauma-informed care? So instead of it becoming more aligned with an expert position and the more in-depth training and the more knowledge we have to have and the binders we all need to study, what if we flipped it literally on its head so that the client or the person or the family, whoever it was that we were sitting in front of them that had supposedly gone through experienced trauma as they're saying or, or we're saying violence that they that they're the expert that they know what how that they've responded they understand why they responded the way that they did it they've absolutely responded I'll never forget the person in the workshop sat after two days and she said to us one time she said I have a question for you and she came up to Art and I and we said yes and she said what you're saying now she said I'm understanding that what happened to me and she said I don't need to go into my story she said that being passive was a response skill and a very valuable response skill. Do you remember that conversation? Mm. And we said, absolutely. And she said, pa I've been told my whole life that being passive was bad. And she said, what I'm just realizing right now that being passive saved me. And we said, that's exactly it. Mm. Yeah. That's exactly and, it. And, you know, I think also the, 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 sh the shift here as well uh, is that 
if we look at that community-based practice and we look at the work we many of us as workers do every day in listening to people and trying to consult with people and trying to create some safe space for them to show up then I think what's critical is that is one of the that's one of the most important foundational uh, spaces in which whatever we call trauma-informed yes. practice yes. can be uh, explored yeah. right and and too often all that community-based work is completely just dismissed yeah. as you know not the real professional stream not not where the most trustable uh, evidence-based work gets done this is also I think um, it's a very community-based version of violence and trauma-informed practice yeah. Right? It honors, because uh, typically what really needs to happen is that, you know, I see on a daily basis that, for example, with a lot of youth that our youth outreach workers work together with, who has the best relationship with that youth? The youth outreach worker. Mm -hmm. That's typically what happens in our community. But that worker is the first worker who's going to be discredited and not consulted by all the other, all the other agencies that have to make the really important decisions. Right? They're typically going to not listen to that worker and not listen to what that worker knows about that youth. Mm. And that's often the relationship that we should be honoring the most. Mm -hmm. It occurs to me there's sort of um, two directions we can go talking about the structural changes to be made in the ways we think about trauma and also working with individuals or like smaller groups of people. And I think we could do both. Um, but I'm just wondering if we should focus on one or the other right now or or what do you what do you think oh my gosh it's it's, it's a great question because they're these days i'm not sure how to talk about one without talking about the other i know i guess one of the ways they're linked um like i'm thinking of the time that government did a review of services and men's programs and they came and visited one of our men's groups as a result of doing the individual and the group work with a lot of men over time one of the results we started to see with that was that um, more and more men started to show up. And I don't mean just physically, I mean, you know, psych psychologically show up with us uh, and start talking about their lives and start talking about the complexity of their lives and certainly start talking about their own experiences of abuse and sexual abuse. You know, and also the, the all the stats changed in our men's programs. I mean, when I came into this work, it was like 99% court-ordered men. Now it's typically for us about 30% court-ordered men. And there's been this huge shift over time. Um, I think w to me where it's linked is that we create this whole dichotomy between a strength and weakness, right? And that dichotomy is part of like our whole traditional gender script, right? It is. It's like that, that, that dichotomy is what I think as some kind of like I've struggled on all for much of my adult life to be some version of helpful pro-feminist. I don't know how to do that kind of work without unpacking all these dichotomies because I think the dichotomies are are just kept in place by dominant by domination by systems that dominate. Mm -hmm. So this whole dichotomy of strength and weakness, my experience of just unpack like. Oh, God, it was long before we met. I was, like, hiding out in my office alone with tons of men. And, um, and I remember one night thinking, uh, I really wanted to introduce more, more radically this idea of dichotomous thinking, either-or thinking, and trying to unpack it together with men's groups. And my initial judgment was, oh, my God, I can't do this. The men won't understand. Yeah. 
And then when I actually started trying to do it together, and just like, what are the either ors we get caught up in? You know, I'm either weak or I'm strong. It's either a good behavior or a bad behavior. And we just started doing all this one night. And I remember all the men just sort of looking at me. And then one of the men said that night, it said, it's like Art finally got it. (laughs) You you know, and and right, and I, and I, so I think there's this huge relationship that can be played between that and system change. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that that practically unfolded is that when then government was doing a review of services and came to talk to one of the men's groups, and what the men said actually made a difference. It got documented by the workers. It actually shaped the recommendations of review. So, you know, I think there's an often direct linkage there between the individual work, because I think just... If we look at trauma and violence in this way, my experience is people start showing up and telling us about their lives or telling me about their lives in a way I previously would not have heard of. And I think I don't think you would have heard their responses, right? I, I, I don't think I no. think I don't think we had space to, to explore response skills or survival skills or whatever you want to call them. I, I think they were viewed in as maladaptive or they were viewed as in that dichotomy as good or bad and now we're understanding it's 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 more complex than that that the response skill is a response skill it's helpful and unhelpful at, at the same time depending on whatever situation it is that you're dealing with and you can't we shouldn't be talking about trauma or response trauma responses without first talking about or exploring a person's response skills and understanding about how they've actually maneuvered or, or responded to whatever significant events in their lives they've actually faced. Mm-hmm. Why, why would we ethically ever do that to somebody without first acknowledging that they've been embodied per people as much as the science shows the brain is shrinking and all these horrific things are happening to your body, people are actually still quite brilliantly responding through all kinds of situations. I know. I'm really suspicious about that uh, story that my amygdala has shrunk. Oh, I- <laughs> I know, I know. Just, it's I, so I awful. I don't like that. Well, especially when this, when it just stays there. When that, that's all you're talking about is how, how we've all shrunk. Well, it's it's very fascinating, it's so isn't it? Bad. It's bad. Yes. You know, it's it's not like there may not be some really helpful things that can come out of all kinds of research, um, but it it's just about acknowledging what you're saying about embodied people. Yes. And uh, and being able to look at how we can learn to consult with them in ways that change us. Yes. When we're in the midst of Completely. so busy, busily trying to change them. Completely. There was one term that I heard of that uh, I talked to you about, and you have some problems with it. Is the term post-traumatic growth, which points at the ways that people can grow from traumatic experience. Can you talk to me about, about your concerns about that term? You're going to trigger us the whole night. <laughs> I'm sorry. We could take a break. I don't know. Um, well, um, the whole idea of post-traumatic growth can be presented very naturalistically it can be presented in a way that yet again renders the person's agency completely invisible you know it can imply that oh well this this just happens you know this afterwards there will be post-traumatic growth it just happens and it also implies that that there's nothing about the pre-traumatic period that has anything to do with growth And and so and I just I'm I'm just really worried about the naturalism of it and the way in which it can render people's agency completely invisible. Does that? Yep. Is there anything else about it in terms of the context? Like, 
post-traumatic growth becomes the little add-on yes. at the end of a very deficit-laden discourse yes. Yes. that yes. seems to imply, yes. oh, by the way, yeah. we, we value resilience. Yes. By the way, yes. you know, but it's this little yes. add-on. Yes. And, you know, and like one time a child protection worker said to me, she said, you know, we've tacked on strengths-based practice to the end of our inventories with, with families. But she said, you know, by the time you get to the end of that whole inventory and the intake, you know, the strengths-based <laughs> questions don't exactly hold much weight. You know, you don't believe you don't believe the outcome. You don't believe what they're saying about mm -hmm. uh, about strengths. By the time you've actually unpacked all the deficits, mm -hmm. so again, it the post-traumatic growth discourse presents resilience and presents strength in a dichotomous opposition to deficit. And is that yeah? And we're really wanting to unpack the dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is that making sense? What we're trying to say? <laughs> it does. You were talking about this third step from going from what's wrong with you to what happened to you to a third step of how have you responded, how have you survived, what are your skills and knowledges, which is a little different than saying you naturally grow from traumatic experiences. There's, there's, things, there's agency that people um, had to do, there's things people uh, tried, there's things people learned along the way. I imagine when people start talking, they might have already talked to other uh, helpers, or other therapists, or other workers. And do you have some like early questions you ask people about uh, the ways they responded, the ways they sur survived, and their skills and knowledges that you you often ask that kind of shifted away from maybe what people are expecting, which is just to talk about you know the the things that have impacted them. There's a real piece in this that to me is about kind of honoring the memory of Michael White. I think a lot around some of that work because I think one of the critical pieces for me has been that continuing to resist looking at trauma in isolation from violence, right, by refusing to look at trauma in isolation from violence, by persisting in linking trauma with violence and trauma-informed practice with violence. Then I think one of my worries is has been that so much of what we do is just another replication of that voice of violence in people's lives. If we are only asking people questions about what happened to them, then whose agency are we actually noticing? We're noticing the agency of people who hurt them. So I just, I started early on starting to ask people, when people would, um, would uh, tell me what, what was happening, a lot of my questions were just very simple questions. I felt like just very simple questions, which is like, well, what did you do? And how did you know when to do that? What else did you learn that you had to do? Like, so any simple question that was focused on their agency, to bring it back to the fact that they're not just a passive recipient of violence. That example Nancy used, we often think that Passivity is an expression of passivity, uh, but it's not. Passivity is often an expression of, uh, of a preference for safety mm -hmm. and, and a knowledge that I need to be quiet right now to survive. Mm -hmm. Like Michael White used to talk, I think, you know, I, I remember him talking about paying attention to a lot of these uh, details that we tend to just wash over too quickly. The details of people's agency, the details of how they've responded. So I, for me, it's just been often sitting with people um, and, and wanting to honor their agency in the process of hearing the story. And the more, the more that I've, 
felt I could ask questions that were about honoring their agency at the community-based level. There's not a huge difference between trauma-informed practice and restorative practices and strengths-based practices. These are very mutually supportive discourses. They are. And so it's not unlike asking restorative practice questions around what happened next, except it's, except it's keenly aware of wanting to honor their agency. Yeah. What did you do next? You know, what did you learn you had to do? What did you learn you had to not do? Right? Like, with that, say, with the man who told me about lying to get to, to get to grandmothers, who did you learn you had to lie with? And who did you learn you didn't have to lie with? How did you know that? How did you assess that? What did you look for? You know, one time I asked a man, he, he had been severely, severely profiled by, um, the, by a lot of our government system, profiled to the extent that I think nobody ever had actually really consulted with him. I remember consulting him about what he was looking for as a little boy because he had experienced a lot of violence on multiple levels as a little boy, first at home, uh, individually, and uh, in, within the family, and then within a uh, residential living uh, situation for uh, the rest of his youth. And so many levels of um, violence. And I remember one day I said, you know, when you study, he said he studied people. He said, I'm like a researcher. I said, what are you looking for when you're studying people? And he said, it's really simple. I'm looking for a good heart. That's what I'm looking for. I think to me, it's, they're often very simple questions and they're often very eloquent responses. It's not a sophisticated therapeutic process at, at that level. It's about really listening to people and actually believing. You know, one of the one of the assumptions is that believing that people are responding, yes. believing that people are humans, and they are responding in some way uh, to what's happening. And, and that they have knowledge and skills about their situation that we are not aware of. Huge knowledge and skill, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And if we only come focusing on our own skills, we're not going to see theirs, nope. right? And Scott, as you listen, you think about the trauma discourses that you've involved with or heard, you know, what, what stands out for you or what are, what are your kind of questions? It's, I keep on wondering how to practice. I mean, I feel like I come in with a philosophical stance rather than a manual of approaches or that my approach isn't sanctioned that, that I have this, that I'm, I'm just holding on to this idea of, of centering the person and looking for their agency and their response. And um, I have a lot of faith in it, but I don't know how to justify that to my boss, I, I guess, is, is my main question. These the systems I'm working in. I have to hide in, in the medical model. I've gone rogue. <laughs> but Yay! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think that's how Art and I both felt uh, up until being able to really truly collaborate and, and work together and begin to see some of the changes. I think we were both working rogue in separate ends of our provinces. I think, and I don't think when you say that that feeling, I think that that's one of the things that we have really 
focused on or discussed at our at all our workshops that we have facilitated is people who are in this field have a want to stay connected to the human part of this work and the binders get in the way and it's not to say that we don't need the binders but we also need to come from this philosophical shift that people are awesome and people have skills and responses that are sitting in front of us that we need to make space to hear those things and you and our experience across Atlantic Canada with hundreds of people is workers feel rejuvenated by this slight philosophical shift in in how we work and we and there's a there's a resounding clapping almost like what we did is people don't feel rogue anymore people feel oh my god well that is what i do because that fits with who i am as a person right i am i'm in this field to help and to support and to i don't need to be an expert in someone's life i don't need to i need to fit within the structures and the confines of our systems but that's exactly your 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 question is exactly what we are trying with this process of figuring out how can workers keep the humanizing part of their job and the ethics of who they are as people and how can we how can we actually require system change from our systems rather than the other way around the complexities of what you're talking about is exactly exactly what has brought art and i here exactly the same and you know and you know i think for those structures even for somebody who may work in those structures at a level where they're they're not involved in any of the frontline work with with people they're they're simply making decisions about how those structures are funded and how they how they operate even if that person at that level doesn't give a damn about people quite frankly what's huge about this is that it's not only socially effective way to work but it's a financially effective way to work and what we're doing together with government is showing you know how much a crisis driven system costs it costs people it costs dollars yeah. And if you don't care about people and only care about dollars, you can still hear that message. <laughs> it still works. And so a huge thing about the work that is trauma-informed in this version of community-based trauma-informed work is that it increases our capacity. Because of the relationship yes. building with, with, with uh, children, youth, adults, and families, it increases our capacity to do preventive work together with people. Yes. And, you know, the whole lens of domestic violence intervention has been crisis-driven. Yes. So because it increases our capacity to do preventive work, that preventive work saves so much. You know, the big, big thing for me that it saves is it saves people's lives mm -hmm. and it saves communities. It saves our, um, our identities as communities and, and a nation, mm -hmm. right? But you can easily parallel that preventive work with a completely abstract documentation of the huge saving in resources. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's both invigorating, helpful, and cost-effective. I don't understand why we're so mesmerized by crisis-driven systems. Uh, those crisis-driven systems, I think, serve us. I, I think they do fit with a certain level of heroicism that many workers, I think, have been trained into. You know, that we are the person with all the skills. We are the person who's going to solve everything. But I, I really think that, that there's, a wonderful, um, there's a wonderful way in which this discourse about trauma-informed practice can apply across sectors. So it can apply at that level of frontline work. It can also apply at the level of management and leadership. And yes, it is a philosophy, and it is a philosophical change. And I think it's a profoundly helpful shift at all those levels. And 
thinking about the you know worker frontline worker who may be having a difficult time in a system right now maybe listening to this right now and maybe they've been told that it's because of vicarious trauma and or maybe they haven't fully worked through their issues or the various things i'm sorry to trigger you again but <laughs> but you know i mean this is something that that trauma-informed movement has brought into discussions when a worker's having a difficult time that it may be because of vicarious trauma from the difficult clients that they're working with or their own issues not being fully worked through. And what is your uh, response to that? Like, how do you see vicarious traumatization? How do you see when the conversation goes to vicarious trauma when a worker is expressing difficult times at work? Well, do you want to respond? Do you want me to start? You start. Well, there's nowhere good to start. No, there's nowhere good to start. <laughs> um, well, I really like how you just worded that, Will. I mean, you know, as, as I was listening to you, it immediately, like, lit up inside because, um, because it's so convenient. It's so convenient to be able to, to have us all think that the people coming in are the reason that we're traumatized. Um, rather than, rather, so then we don't have to talk about the system. We don't have to talk about the structure changing. We don't have to look at how that structure is impacting everybody negatively. Uh, you know, one of the things I think that's really important is to look at how, how existing structures often contain documents that we don't pay attention to. Uh, like, for example, within the whole history of child protection services, I've often had the experience of working together with somebody who's uh, undergoing parental capacity assessments right now in their adult life. So the person might be, say, 40 years old or 45, and they're undergoing parental capacity assessments within Child Protection Services. What sometimes isn't paid attention to at all in that process is that the records actually exist. They're somewhere in the legacy of those binders in the history of that, uh, of that agency that show that at, um, say, age of seven, age of eight, that uh, that adult man uh, at that time was actually sexually abused in foster care. So we have this, we, within the system itself, there is the documentation that makes structural violence visible. We could all use those documents to change our system. We could use those documents to support service transformation. And I really think that uh, whenever, the, whenever the talk of vicarious trauma comes up and it's that individualized focus on how hard it is to work with these people and uh, how hard it is to hear these stories, you know, I think we've rendered that whole systems piece invisible. And then because we've rendered it invisible uh, in the past, I think we've, we're also in the process of making it invisible in the very, in the very moment right? Because if I'm only sitting with somebody, and if I'm only hearing, a, if I'm just hearing a story that's told to me, without any rigor on my part to honor that person's agency, right? If I'm just hearing a, a story that is completely told from the, from the position of being done to, then I've just participated in another whole layer of that structural systems violence that that person historically knows in their life. Right? Because I haven't, I haven't created that chance to engage with them in a way that hears about how they have responded. So I think that, oh, I might be losing here a little bit, but I think there's a, there's a really important piece there 
So, for example, with, with workers who are experiencing vicarious trauma, how do we support those workers to, in that philosophical shift? Yes. Right? How do we support workers to engage in that philosophical shift, to have the experience of the people you're working together with showing up in a more profound that's, way? Yes. So, yes. Is there anything that's coming up from I said that you want to add to? Vicarious trauma to me is also is exactly what Art is saying, and we've been trying to unpack it with through workshops and through conversations. Is is it brings it back to that individual worker, and it brings it it makes it completely invisible the whole idea of that reflective practice piece and that reflection upon the system and upon the worker's role themselves, right? Mm. And that's the part that. As soon as you start talking about vicarious trauma, it, it again, it just centers the work around the individual and it completely decenters the individual that is there for, for the assistance or the help or the whatever it is. It's a, it's a very interesting and it's also fascinating for me on how much traction it has been gaining. And it implies that it's just going to happen. It's fascinating. Doesn't it? It yes. implies it's just inevitable. Yes. It's going to happen. Yes. Yes. And so, does, so then we don't have to look at supervision. Nope. We don't have to look at collaborative practice. No. And then, so, wh why do you think it's gaining so much traction? Well, I think it's gaining traction because the same is why that the certain version of trauma-informed care is gaining the same traction is because it's yeah. so worker-centered. Yeah. It's so worker-centered. It's so much about um, us having being the embodied person with the knowledge and the and that's where I just think it sits. What were you going to say? Well, it's so ironic that it, that we could talk about it as worker-centered, and yet in a profoundly huge way, it's not worker-centered at all. No. Because, because, no, because it doesn't, doesn't allow a philosophical shift in how they experience their work. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, it doesn't at all. When I listen to the you know, complaints and the complaints I have myself in community mental health, the paperwork load is often a huge complaint and a huge factor in burnout, and the way it shapes you to see people in certain ways. and. You spent a lot of time typing about people's symptoms and what you did to help them with their symptoms, what you taught them, what the goals are. And so it shapes you to think of people in certain ways and to work certain ways. And when people are burning out, often they'll talk about the kind of the paperwork load of the structural demands and constraints on them. And then if that gets shifted into, you know, you should have practiced more self-care or vicarious trauma, then any of those kind of structural problems they had or they were raising gets pushed to the side for the fact that they should practice self-care or that it's a difficult work working with traumatized people and paperwork load seems to be increasing in community mental health and it has real effects on people's lives and the ways they can work it's a great way to prevent a revolt isn't it i mean i mean i guess you, you can prevent a revolt but <laughs> By simply saying you're not doing enough self-care, and yeah, these people are horrible to listen to all day. So no wonder you're having a struggle. Hmm. Yeah, and that and that and well, what you're talking about with the paperwork—that's that's exactly what we're talking about. Was you can't you can't pull apart the structural harm. You can't pull apart the need for system change from this conversation because so much of what our systems actually are engaging in are probably extremely unhelpful practices and expensive and expensive costly and absolutely nothing to do with what the people in front of us actually need and so when we keep bringing in the structural pieces into this conversation that's kind of one of our fears with trauma-informed is somehow the the systems have latched onto very helpful language I was so 
hopeful with trauma language years ago when it first started to kind of percolate up because it was the first time I'd ever heard language that was a leveling language. And by leveling, I mean there wasn't a system or a department, government, not-for-profit, education, justice, Department of Community Services, that wasn't, that it, that it didn't percolate through. And it was fascinating to me. It was the first time in our province for a long time I felt like we might all be able to speak a common language. And it didn't matter if you were an administrator or an ED or a board member or a frontline worker, you were, be you were beginning to be knowledgeable about trauma. And what happened was our systems took it up as yet another layer of pathology and another layer of way to replicate harm, not intentionally, completely unintentionally, but that's what happens when we don't reflect is things happen that shouldn't happen. And so now that's my fear is now I'm worried about the language of trauma-informed. Well, we are worried about the language of mm -hmm. trauma-informed because um, it has become a very a very pathologizing, another level of work that is that is potentially unhelpful if we don't reflect on it in a different way. Mm. Yeah, and I was very hopeful too. I thought this is a language that will help us all critically reflect together. That's, what I, that's, what that's I where I went. And then, and then, but instead, it's like a language that actually helps our current system become more effect, more effective at just re-entrenching itself with a new discourse yeah. yet again. So if there's an organization out there and, and they are hearing some of your ideas and they want to start moving in that direction, they're kind of starting to question some of the trauma-informed um, practices they've been doing. Are there some early shifts that you, you made um, early on that maybe an organization could take on or um, some practices they could start to take on a, at an organizational level? Well, I think, I, I think there's multiple things that can be taken on all at once. I think you know, a huge shift in terms of the interpersonal relationships Absolutely. between what? Between workers yes. and between workers and the people we serve. Yes. And, and, and then at the, at the level of administration, at the, at the level of policy, I think there's a huge way in which those can be linked together yeah. through this exploration, through this discourse on violence and trauma. What? Um, yeah, I, I was exactly what Art was saying. I think that there... Uh, I think both of our shops, um, our first attempt, or, or maybe we were always working in this way, but it became more enhanced, was nothing to do with the services that we were necessarily delivering to people. It was really a, a focus and a reflection on how we were with each other, how we were as an agency, what kind of culture did we have, how, what was the impact of us as workers on our sessions, what were our thoughts, that whole idea of reflective practice. And then we moved very quickly into starting to look at our actual practices. So what happens when somebody walks in our door? How are they greeted? How are they? And it's not to say that the binder, the trauma binders don't talk about some of that stuff. They do. But if somebody was just going to actually begin to look at their their stuff, to me, it would be look at the look at the interrelationships and the structural piece first. And it, that's fascinating. I just realized we've gone and we've gone in different directions towards it historically. Yes, yes we have. Yeah. Because I came from hiding out alone you, yeah. with these men. Yeah. And so it came really from that towards yeah. the interpersonal piece with the workers. Yeah. But with with your piece, it's like from the interpersonal piece with the with the culture of the organization, and then the implications of that. Yeah, and for me as a frontline worker, it came as the same place for you, mm -hmm. delivering, being the the provider of a men's domestic violence mm. program for 20 years. It mm. came from exactly what we talked about earlier, kind of feeling rogue all the time with the delivering of that program, feeling like I 
I couldn't, there's no possible way that I could just deliver that 20-hour program without also providing some level of care and awareness of what their own stories were and how they were responding and providing some sort of care around the social determinants of health. So for me as a worker, I was processing that. But then as an ED, it came more about the interpersonal relationship mm-hmm. stuff. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. Because of all that philosophical and practical shift within organizations, yeah. no matter, no, I guess no matter how that ends up unfolding, all I can say is around what happened locally was that started to get noticed. Yeah. yeah. And, and then that's led to really helpful dialogue about service transformation. And we talk about, when, we, when we're in dialogue with people, we talk about ideas and, and open discussions around what each person in those, in those discussions can leave to do. It's, it, you might always find yourself as a worker, always working within a system that is not part of this philosophical change, but that doesn't mean, we've talked about that, doesn't mean that you as a worker can't work differently within that system. Mm. We, we've talked about that a lot. Well, I think in the huge piece is in what we mentioned earlier about... Um, coordinated activities and yeah. workers coming together at the at the practice-based level uh, I think that's huge uh, we're seeing the evidence of how much that allows us to I guess to as workers have a place to stand outside of the agency we work within uh, to be able to yes. then question together what we're all doing, mm. and not and not just see the issues we face as just issues related to one department yeah. or one sector, yeah. but issues faced by all of Everybody. us yeah. across sectors, yeah. and um, and that is that's to me incredibly an incredibly helpful support for us as workers to see that. You know, because because historically in the community, one in the community where my my central office is, uh, you know, I, I love how two workers worded at one time at one of those collective meetings. They were in the context of child protection services, and we're all looking at how we can kind of unpack together and be critically reflective together about the assumptions we're bringing to a specific case. And um, two workers uh, from child protection said. You know, we're really tired of being considered to be the evil stepsisters of the community. And, you know, and I think there's specific departments, too, where workers end up experiencing a lot of pain, not only because of the pressures within that structure itself, but also because of how that structure is storied in the community. At least here, for example, child protective services and mental health departments, often get, they're often the ones that are the most evil stepsisters in the community. Right? So it so it historically been very easy for nonprofits to take a holier than thou attitude, without looking at how we can just be as evil as stepsister as any yeah. of the others, yeah. you know. So, so I think it's really allowed a lot of really helpful kind of critical reflection together on how we work yes. together as agencies across like in kind of inter, interdepartmentally and within the community. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thoughts, Scott. I guess I'm wondering about how to invite people to critically reflect when they seem concerned with having competence and kind of expert knowledge. How, how do you get them curious about what they're doing? Like, how do you inspire somebody to, to approach their, their work from a more collaborative place is something I'm always thinking about and I, wrestling with. And, and, and Scott, you've, you've talked a little bit about workers who feel like their clients are in danger and so they need to learn a lot of expert skills in order to 
ethically help the client. They need to learn these expert techniques that help with trauma. And so I'm also thinking about someone who's who's caught up in that discourse. It's really important that they are an expert to help this person who's in danger. Yeah, one of the pieces of coordinated collaborative practice that I find really helpful is that, my, well, historically for, for my community, it allowed us to take some examples and work on them together. And these could be examples of where many of us have felt we've all failed. So there can, there can be a lot of pressures to be that expert worker, but I think even the person who tries the most to be the expert worker has the list of cases where they feel the system has failed somebody. Does that make... I just think it's very important to be able to come together over some of those cases and look at, like, how do we do this in a different way? And, yeah. and right? Does that... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One thing Scott and I were talking about this before is that sometimes when we are with a group of professionals, therapists, talking about a case that's not working so well, it, it, it can shift towards the other therapist validating the therapist. You're doing a great job. That person has a personality disorder or they're not taking responsibility for their actions. We, pref I think, prefer to talk to people who don't do that and find some other way of talking about situations when they don't work out. But it can really shut down possibilities for learning if it's just oh, I, I'm getting validation from my colleagues that I'm great, and it's the client who has a personality disorder or is not taking responsibility. No, it's true. I mean, I think that, that, that's a really great example. There, there, there are, um, I, think, I think in this process of trying to support a philosophical shift and in this process of any kind of service transformation, it can be distracting for us if we only focus on the people who aren't going to champion the process. And they think there's always going to be somebody who's not going to champion the process. And maybe they're not going to champion it because they love being an expert. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're not going to champion it because they're not really engaged with their work. And that's okay. I guess I worry that I can get very distracted by those people and it can lead me away from connecting like Nancy and I have connected. It can lead me away from connecting with the people in my community that are going to nurture this philosophical shift too. And, uh, and not everybody's going to do it, and that's totally okay. I just don't want to get distracted by them, and I don't want to get distracted by that, by that energy. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, because, I mean, there's always, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing, but, I mean, my experience has been there's, there's always somebody in our, in our community who's incredibly negative, um, who's, who's, you know, just going to naysay everything that has to do with any kind of change. And there's always going to be somebody who loves being, um, I don't know, like the psychiatrist who's just the most highly skilled psychiatrist in the world. And I'm okay with that. I just really want to gather with the people who, who maybe recognize that there's things in our system that need to change and recognize that there's a lot of ways we could be, we could be more people-centered together and recognize that they've experienced um, they've experienced uh, cases where systems have really let people down, systems have really violated people. To me, that's that's the community I want to be a part of, and I think I can get too distracted by the people who don't who who don't fit with that. What? Yeah. Any? No, I agree. Service transformation or, or or this kind of philosophical shift. It's not for everybody, and I think that's totally okay. 
you know, and also I think it's not like it's not like we're dissing expertise. Um, there are lots of important ways in which models can be very helpful to know about, and there's lots of very important ways in which they can be helpful to people. But the difficulty with the expertise is that I think we have to have a consultative basis in our work together with people so that we can begin to know if and where and when those expertise, those pieces of expertise are helpful to implement. By consulting with the, with the people we work with. Exactly. I see in the talking points we talk, talked about you know, bringing boys and men's experience of gender, violence, and trauma into the conversations. I believe we've touched on that a little bit, but is there more you want to more you want to talk about with that? I think that there's lots of room for enhancing enhancements of the research around the impact of violence and trauma on men and boys and the work with uh, men and boys because, as Art said, the most of the research is coming out of women's studies, and so even in all of our work and our in our discussions, um, there is very extremely limited research around this work with um, men and boys. And so Art and I, we come from a place of both of us working with men and boys, and not our agencies, but us as workers. And so I think that's where one of the reasons we've collaborated so deeply around this. And we've always continued to hold this, the care for men and boys front and center, really, with our work, which is which wasn't always easy. Well, and, and also, I was really concerned to kind of take apart the silos in my work, because yeah. within the domestic violence intervention programs, we were, we were supposed to, 20 years ago, yes. right, I was supposed to be a men's worker. So one of the other things I did under the radar was meet all the women who wanted to talk with me, because often women would say, hey, you're working with my man, I want to know who you are, yeah. right? So, so, it's, so that was another way we had to fly under the radar, was by saying, oh, yes, I'm a men's worker, but actually I was, I was talking and listening with everybody. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that's a huge piece, right? We don't have the research we, um, uh, in that context. And also, I think what we, what we seem to struggle to uh, face is that traditional uh, versions of uh, gender are incredibly negative for boys and men, uh, as w just as with anybody else. So uh, we, we're, we're still, I think, mesmerized by that idea of the uh, all-powerful, hap happy abuser. The problem with that, with that lens is that it doesn't, again, allow us to look at the complexity. It doesn't allow us to look at the complexities of power. There's a huge piece of work we still have to do here around that engagement with boys and men. And because I think we talk a lot in, right now in Canada about engaging boys and men, but I think a lot of that talk is very strategic and it's very instrumental. It's based on an instrumental logic and the logic often is that we need to engage boys and men to make women safer. Mm -hmm. And I don't disagree with that one bit. I'm just saying we need to engage with boys and men to make them safer too. Yeah. And we need to be able to care for everybody yeah. and not have instrumental discourses that say that you care for the man to make the woman safer. Yeah. That's not the only or, reason. Or that discourse of we need to care for the care for the woman or the person identifying as female but we need to challenge the male right right yeah i mean i've seen in a huge way how i've replicated dominant uh, the dominant gender script by the fact that if i was sitting with a woman in a yeah. in a counseling or supportive conversation i'd be much more caring and if i was sitting with the man 20 years ago i was much more suspicious yeah. i was just waiting for him to pull the wool over my eyes and um, right, and so that's about being critically reflective about our participation as well in practices, dominant practices of gender. 
one of the things that was a helpful influence uh, here in Nova Scotia, I, I think of all the work by the, um, Bly Frank. Mm -hmm. Bly Frank in Nova Scotia was a masculinities, and, and still is, he's now on the west coast of Canada, but he's, uh, he's been a masculinities expert. He did research in Nova Scotia on the experiences of boys and men in the context of engaging health services. That, that's been some very local, helpful local work to point to, uh, because he's done a lot of work focused on looking at men and men's health and illness and masculinity. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like one of the huge reasons why, uh, like I think whether it's with, um, with Nancy's organization or our organization, we've been spending a lot of effort in looking at how we link men with health resources yes. and health and primary health care. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, I come back to the social determinants of health. That's an incredibly helpful Canadian invention, that philosophical lens. Can you say what the social determinants of health are? Like, is it, is it a list of dimensions or do you, do you know them offhand? Yeah, yeah. The social determinants of health uh, are all the are all the contexts that impact on people's lives, and so access to education, social determinant of health, early childhood development is a social determinant of health, inclusion in community, are you are how how fully are you included in the community in which you live? That's a social determinant of your health. Gender is also a determinant of health. Historically, we thought it's only a negative determinant of health for women. But it's a it can be a negative or positive determinant of health for anybody, and uh, so uh, housing. There's various lists that people have developed, but most of those lists are about 13 items long, in terms of all those factors that play a critical role in in somebody's inclusion in community and somebody's health and well-being. Mm -hmm. Our men's program is embedded in the same site where there's primary health care access and a housing program. And uh, it's because typically people are coming. This has been part of the history for both of us, right? People coming with the expectation um, they've been told they need anger management and to come to us for anger management. But, you know, we find out the person doesn't have any food. You know, I'm, I might be talking to a man who hasn't eaten for three days or doesn't have anywhere to live. So I think the social determinants of health is an incredibly helpful framework for us as workers to to be holding on to, to help keep in mind that what matters in our work are not just the professional toolkits. Mm -hmm. What matters in our work is how are we going to support this person being included in a, in a healthy, functioning uh, community. Yeah. How are we going to help this person be included in a healthy, functioning community? Is that what you said? Well, that's, yeah, it's not exactly my greatest quote. But you know, but 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 I but I think in you you know it's 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 about it's about um, in many ways what many people describe it about it's about providing the supports that help people get on with the lives they want, and it's pretty hard to get on with the life life you want and the family you want if you're hungry and you don't have anywhere to live, and everybody excludes you and judges you. So social inclusion is a huge piece of that of the social determinants of health. But it could be a Canadian thing. That's what I'm... <laughs> I like it. I guess I'm especially thinking about the rogues out there who are out there in a difficult agency and they're surrounded by something and they don't feel like I have a lot of power. And maybe they, maybe they just know that something doesn't feel quite right about the way that trauma is being talked about in the community, but they don't yet have any kind of alternative. I remember that being that in community mental health, just feeling like something I don't like about 
the ways we're talking, but I don't know what else there is. And so I guess my hope is, is this could get, this could reach some of those people who are surviving being in a rogue situation and who are in the process of developing an alternative and they could feel some sort of solidarity and some new directions that they could inquire into. So I guess it also asks you, you know, if, if we could send this podcast and, and this message out to people, who would you especially like to hear it? Wow. Um, I, what do you think? Well, I, well, I just think back to our podcast we did with the Health Canada. The webinar, yeah. The webinar. And it ended up being one of the top webinars that had ever been um, published. And, and who ended up finding that helpful was a very, very diverse group of professionals and community members. And so uh, based on that, I think that anyone who was in this field that was wondering exactly the things, Will, that you wondered about is, is this the only version of trauma-informed practice that's out there? And is there a way to still fit with that humanizing piece of the work? And, and there is a way. We just need to figure it out. Um, I think it's anybody at any level that's exactly. interested in service transformation. Absolutely. You know, so it can, I mean, one of the nice things about being a rogue in 2017 is that it's not like being a rogue in 1967. You know, like, like, <laughs> like, you know, like I was a rogue in 1967 and I knew that the DSM had reached the hayfield yeah. and I knew that homosexuality was a disorder. Uh, but I didn't know what in fuck to do about it, yeah. and uh, and so you know, at least being a rogue today, we have uh, we have a, we have a a somewhat global network of communication for the people who have the luxury of being able to access it in the world. Okay. You know, I think of all the millions of people in the world who don't have access to the World Wide Web, and um, and um, I'm worried about all those people as well. So um, I think, um, yeah, I think it's really really helpful if. If people here who are frontline workers, if people here who are trying to enact systems change at higher levels, because that's that's great the way you worded it, Nancy. We had we had people connect with us uh, who are doing a lot of frontline practice. We had the EDs of community-based organizations connect with us. We, did. we had people within government departments at a provincial level connect with us, we did. and we had federal government connect we with did. us. And and so right and so one of the one one of the funny things about that was when Ottawa, when when our national government is based in Ottawa, and one day a worker left a phone message on my phone from Ottawa and I called her back, and she said it must be odd to have Ottawa call you instead of you have to call Ottawa, <laughs> and and I said well it's nice to hear from you what's up up there, so I, I think it's just really helpful that. I think there are a lot of people who want to honor their ambitions or their hopes as to why they got into the work they did. And those people could be at management levels, at federal, provincial government levels, or at frontline levels in community-based service. And that's what we have found has become the unifying. It is the, the that intent of why it re? Why this, did they get into the work in the first place? This, this right. philosophical shift allows you to, to re-embrace that. And to also see how actually together if yes. we work together, yes. it's achievable. Yeah. yeah. That's the, that to me is the amazing part. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very cool. Speaking of that CH Networks, that's how I got in contact with you as well. That's how I heard of you too. So 
That's another part of the story and the effects of, of doing that recording back in 2015. I'll put a link to the show notes for people who want to listen to the original webcast. webcast. Scott, is there anything else to, that's kind of lingering for you that's standing out or questions that you might be kicking yourself tomorrow if you don't ask them right now or anything like that? Um, I mean, I guess we've talked about structural vi violence, but not named it colonization yet to talk about the cultural piece about dominant Western mental health practices and how they take over people's uh, local knowledge. I'm so glad you raised that because, Excellent. yeah, because, you know, one of the, one of the resources that we've referenced that's really helpful is a, a book by Renee Linklater called Decolonizing Trauma Work. And, you know, certainly in Canada, it's been indigenous communities that have often led the way in, for example, changing the landscape around, for example, men's work and how men are responded to within men's work. And, and it, it's been a slow shift for us to begin to look at ourselves as settlers rather than just simply Canadians. Actually, this is, I'm so glad you mentioned this because one of the huge issues is within many of the mainstream trauma-informed trainings in Canada, those trainings often talk about decolonization as if that version of trauma-informed work only fits for Native communities. You know, so if you're doing a trauma-informed training at a Native community, you would talk about decolonizing trauma-informed practice. Yeah. But what we're advocating is that decolonization is important for everybody. Right, it decolonization impacts everybody. It just doesn't impact indigenous communities. What do you want to say more about that in terms of? No, other than we've had some wonderful conversations over the years in our various workshops. It, well, and also, you know, in the Canadian context, I'm thinking of colonization, but I'm also thinking of a really a really wonderful workshop with African Nova Scotian community members. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that got identified at, at one of those workshops was, um, I'll never forget a moment yeah. when a, a woman said to me, she said, you've permitted a conversation about slavery yes. that she said, often I don't feel permitted to have when I'm in any kind of trauma-informed yes. or professional training. She said, not only did you listen to me, but you actually brought the topic back the second day. It's very powerful. And we talked about slavery and, uh, and some of the skills that African Nova Scotians have learned. Um, what, you know, one of the things I'll never forget that she said, she said, you know, one of the skills we learned, that one of our skills we've learned is to hide our skills. She said, um, you didn't want people to see that you had skills that would make you advantageous as a slave. And um, so I think in the context of indigenous communities, in the context of, of uh, African-Canadian communities. It's very huge to approach trauma from practice from this community-based context where we honor everyone's unique knowledges and everyone's unique survival skills and create a space where the receiving of that knowledge and that skill can transform who we are as a community and as a culture and as a nation. Thank you so much, Nancy and Art. Uh, do you have any questions for, for us um, about the process or anything like that? 
Well, well, I have. Well, one thing I have is a thank you. Mm -hmm. It's really, really wonderful to meet both of you, and it's very supportive to know that uh, what we're doing is something you connect with and that it it touches you, and that always is something that makes me feel less alone in the world. Yeah, well, we definitely do. I mean, I, I can't. I can't speak for Scott, but I just feel the kind of energy and enthusiasm and I'm excited that I have this recorded so I get to listen to it several times and be like, what did he say? What did you say? What is this? What is it? No, thank I you. Just, yes, no, thank you for the, for the conversation. We're always, we're always thrilled whenever we're invited to have this conversation with anyone. It's very, it is very helpful and it, it is very, um, rejuvenating for us too because we often say the whole reason why we continue to to deliver workshops or engage in conversations is is because it is rejuvenating for us we go back to our own shops and and as much it keeps it very prevalent and very on the surface as we've talked about yes. workshops and so on i've become keenly aware that my purpose my passion is around service transformation and social change yeah. and how trauma-informed work can support that and and so I think that's helped me to be more selective yes. like I mean sometimes we were keenly aware that sometimes you know sometimes what an agency can want is simply a trauma-informed training so everybody can tick off the box that now we've done our trauma-informed training so you know that's helped us to communicate more clearly with people as to you know what we're inviting that this is an invitation into a, a community-based philosophical shift in how we view our work and if they're up for that, then we can do that work together, <laughs> you know? So, um, yep. yeah, it's, it's been quite a, a learning. I guess what, what is just invigorating in an ongoing way is that in all those different contexts in which we've, uh, we've done um, workshops together and, and different training events, that the, those rogue people you mentioned, it's so lovely when we all get to show up together. Yeah. And to and to know that this results in some form of change at multiple levels. You know, I think often I, I'm fascinated by the ripples that can happen in life. You know, the, 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 the ripples that can happen from a few conversations in frontline work and then how that can change how an organization operates, mm -hmm. how that can change how a community operates, how that can change mm -hmm. how the local government system operates. And... Sometimes we just don't know, and we don't maybe are able to know how big those ripples can become. Yeah, well, it's, it's wonderful making ripples with you all. <laughs> Likewise, both Thank of you. Thank you to your both. I, we appreciate your time today yes. as well. Another big thanks, uh, Nancy McDonald and Art Fisher of the Nova Scotia Trauma-Informed Network. You can go online to sfbantr.org for the show notes, including their contact information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>